Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. You got a Bible, open it up. It would be great to uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9. All right, let me ask you a question. What do you need to remember today? It's not a trick question. I just want you to kind of sort the library of thoughts in your head. Because we said, you know, we kind of use the illustration of that moment where Samuel put before the people of God a, a, a kind of a monument to remind them to think of what God does for his people. So as you scroll through your mind, what do you need to remember today? Because the list can be different for all of us, right? <clears throat> I mean, I'm assuming, uh, and I guess I have to just make some assumptions. If, if you would be here and you would say, I follow Christ, then I can make some assumptions about the things that would be on the things you want to remember. <clears throat> and for the rest of you, it might be you're hearing things for the first time, but... Let's just try. What, what do you need to remember today? I'm going to suggest to you that the most winsome, not that we grade God at all, but to me, the most winsome, magnetic, irresistible part of what I know of God is, is the thing we get so comfortable with, and that is his love. I mean, everything that we know of God starts there, right? His love for sinners. And, and if you're like me... Um, if you've walked with God long enough, if you've uh, been to enough retreats and sat in 710 on Tuesday nights, you might get familiar or comfortable with the amazing to somewhat to a crippling degree. You know what I'm saying? Like you're supposed to be just, just awestruck by these things and you just get so familiar. They just kind of fly right over your head. But to me... Um, the magnetic part, the winsome part, the part that invites me close, never repels me, always is, gets more beautiful every time you look at it. It's like, oh my gosh, I get to look at this aspect, this part of God, this love of God again. Um, it's inexhaustible. It's so amazing that you can find a, a person who's been with Christ 70 years and they still weep at the love of God. You don't grow tired with stuff like that. So I'm going to tell you, maybe to some of you, a familiar story. I'm going to remind us of this story because it paints a picture of God's love, his inexhaustible love for us, the kind of love it is, because it's a unique kind of love, because everyone uses that word, but God has the corner on the market for that, that phrase, and we want to talk about it. And it's kind of in this narrative story of, the, of Israel in the days of the kings, Right? And in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we'll read it in just a second, but I have to give it some background so we know kind of the players and, and particularly what's going on here. You're, you're going to know this guy, David, right? You know this, this, the, the character David, at least in some fashion. Well, we're kind of in the epicenter of the beginning of his reign in this particular part of 2 Samuel. And in chapter 8 that precedes this story we're going to read today, there is somewhat of a... Um, Related to last night's sermon, this idea of God's faithfulness, chapter 8 to me really is this chapter of promise. God said to David, you're my man, I'm going to use you and great things are going to happen. He said to his people, I'm going to protect you and you're mine and no one can take you from me. And chapter 8 is just kind of a reminder, oh my gosh, he meant that. Because in chapter 8 you see 
like just a fly-through narrative of David's success on the battlefield. And when you're a fledgling beginning country, a, a people that are hated by everyone around you, for him to win, 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 win all the time against the peoples that wanted to exterminate them, you're reminded that God meant it when he said, I'm going to give you a place and it's yours and no one will be able to stand against you because I'm going to go before you. And so you see that in chapter 8, this wonderful reminder. He meant it. You also see that when God selects this young man, uh, a nobody really in the scheme of, of how you measure people or leaders, David was given the Spirit of God because when God called him, uh, the text tells us that the Spirit of God entered him and empowered him. And from that moment on, he had success. That was the promise. And clearly we see um, in David's beginning, at least, uh, that promise delivered. So you see this chapter 8, oh my gosh, God meant all these promises. And we get to this particular part uh, of chapter 9 and, and big things happen. I want to set up chapter 9 with a particular verse in chapter 8. So if you want to just go back to verse 15. Now, again, remember, chapter 8 is all about all these victories, uh, winning over against uh, the enemies of God's people. And in verse 15, David reigned over Israel doing what was just and right for all his people. Almost a skip it verse, um, but let me just tell you, it's, it's pretty special to see that after David had spent all the year, early years of his, of his reign fighting as a king, all of the Lord's enemies, David stops to do what kings are supposed to do. He considers his people. That's what kings are for. They're to, to carry out justice and they're trying to be kind and righteous to the people. And so David begins that way. Um, and we'll read this story in chapter 9 in just a second. I want to make this point so you know kind of what file to put all this narrative in. Um, David is more than just a real-life character in a real-life narrative going on in the early part of Israel's existence. David is a type. So if you like to consider the kind of stories God is telling, he's not only telling David's story and Israel's story, he's telling his story using David as a character to paint that picture. David is a type. If you look throughout the scriptures, there's more written on David than anybody else. More stories, more narratives, more illustrations than anybody. Even more than Jesus in the Gospels. And that's important because there is, again, this story that God is, is telling and he's using characters to tell it, and David is one of those characters. If you have read your Bible, you might know that David is not called the son of Abraham. He is not uh, called the son of Moses. He's called the son of David. And does he come from the lineage of David? Of course he does. Jesus does. But there's another thing going on in this story of David, and that is this wonderful picture of when David is living out his kingship the best, he is representing the ultimate king. So when you see this verse 15 that you might just skip over normally, that he is considering his people uh, at the beginning of his reign doing what is right and just, that is a type of what God is doing. That, that is who the ultimate king is. It, is. it is really a glimpse of salvation, the glimpse of the heart of God for, for the people of God. It's the glimpse of the Savior's attitude, okay? So with that as a backdrop with the types going on in here. We're going to read a story about David um, looking for a descendant of his best friend, Jonathan, and looking to express this word we started with, love, 
um, towards his best friend. And in this picture of David towards Jonathan's descendant, you're going to see a picture of God's love. And that's what we're trying to remember today, okay? Last, last night, we looked at the faithfulness of God. Today, it's on his love. So let me, let me read it. It's, it's not too long, um, but it'll tell at least the beginning story, and we'll fill in the, the pieces here. David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Stop for a second. Saul was the king before David. Jonathan was, was Saul's son, okay? And, and Jonathan was David's best friend. Now, there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba at your service, he replied. The king asked, is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? We'll come back to that word in a little bit, but that's a significant phrase there. Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he, the king asked. Ziba answered, he's at the house of Maker, son of Amiel in Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Maker, son of Amiel. And when Mephibosheth, that's this descendant of, of Jonathan, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. And David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Verse 11, then Ziba said to the king, your servant will do whatever my lord, the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. Um, wonderful story. Uh, so let me give you the background of this wonderful relationship that brings us to this moment in time. Jonathan and Saul. So, uh, Jonathan and David. You, when you hear the name David, my assumption, if you have grown up anywhere near a church, Bible, whatever, the first thing you think of, of, of David is, oh, David, he was, the, he was the boy that killed the giant, right? We all remember those stories. And that's truly where this connection between Jonathan and and David took place. David was a son of Jesse, one of the eight sons of Jesse, the last son of Jesse. He was a young man, and all he had to do in life was shepherd. In that moment in time, the Philistines um, were coming up against Israel, and they had a champion named Goliath. You know this story. And he would threaten and tease and call out and mock Israel, and no one was, you know, tough enough or brave enough or believed enough to go at the giant. And, and yet here comes David to the battlefield to give his his brothers some food that his dad told him to bring. And, uh, and he's watching this whole scene. He goes, this is ridiculous. I mean, who, who's gonna go fight for God's people? Because God fights these battles. Who's afraid of this guy? And so he just takes it upon himself. Like, I'll do it, I'll do it. 
So Saul the king says, well, let me load you up with armor before you go. And so he puts on his helmet, he puts on the breastplate. I can just picture this. I'm I'm assuming he's kind of in his early teens, and he's strapped down with Saul. Saul was a big man. He's strapped down with all these heavy, like, gear. You know, here's here's the sword, and here's the shield, and here's the breastplate, and blah, blah, blah. And David goes, I can't move. I don't know what to do with this stuff. So he takes it all off, and he simply says, God will fight. And so he goes down to the stream, he picks out stones, puts them in his little shepherd's pouch and off to the battlefield he goes and he just he just looks at the giant and says you're nothing because god's going to deliver you takes a sling kills the giant cuts off his head okay now that's the story and everybody's watching including jonathan the king's son who by himself also was afraid to go to battle and he watches this whole thing and it's just ridiculous and israel just routes the philistines runs them out of there and david has goliath's head in his hands as gory as that is okay And Saul says, who is the dude, who is that guy, and whose father is is he? And so David is brought before Saul, and he's standing there with Goliath's head in his hand, and he's having a conversation with the king about whose kid he is. And Jonathan is just watching. And the text tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 18 that at that moment, Jonathan went, that's my guy. Now, I don't know if you like warriors or if you like brave people, but Jonathan was knit at that moment, the text says, to the heart of Jonathan. I think there's a couple of reasons. I think, obviously, David is different. I mean, he obviously, he stands out in the crowd. I think Jonathan had a different heartbeat. We, we see that earlier in some of the narratives. But I think they were also very much the same in their convictions. They shared that, and, David, and Jonathan's heart was given over to David at that moment and they were connected in, in deep, deep ways. And they, they began this kind of sort of brotherly protection over one another. Because as soon as that moment happened for David, Saul turned crazy. His, his jealousy overtook him. He had, he had failed to obey God when God said, listen, I'll fight for you. Just do exactly what I say. And Saul, in the, almost like right out of the gate, failed to do what God said. And so God said, well, I'm not going to finish with you. I will take your kingdom and I'll give it to another. And I'll bet you that's ringing in his ears when David has his success. And if you follow David's line long enough, you find out that he's super popular. He becomes the people's choice. And in the midst of that climate of David's success, Saul gets really paranoid and he gets sort of crazy. And, and he's out to deal with, uh, with David in a severe way. And so David and Jonathan form a covenant with each other an agreement, a commitment to each other. I'm going to just read it to you. You don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 Samuel chapter 20. This is Jonathan speaking. He said to David, I swear by, my, by the Lord, the God of Israel, that I will surely sound out my father by this time the day, the day after tomorrow. If he is favorably disposed towards you, Will I not send you word and let you know? So he's just saying to David, listen, I know he's acting wacky, but I'm going to go find out for certain how crazy he is. And if he's over the top, I'm going to let you know that you need to be concerned about him. And then verse 13, but if my father intends to harm you, may the Lord deal with me. Let it be so severely if I do not let you know and send you away in peace. Now, this is where the covenant starts happening, this agreement that Jonathan makes with David. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, but show me unfailing kindness, like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I might not be killed. And do not 
ever cut off your kindness from all of my family. So imagine what Jonathan is saying. Like, I'm committed to you, man, all the way. So don't ever quit your promise to guard me, and I will guard you, and, and let this promise go way past our lives. Let it go into our families, this promise of commitment to each other, okay? He says, not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. That's Jonathan's expectation. That is the covenant that they make to each other, okay? So now, in the midst of this scene, Saul is losing his mind in jealous rage over over David. He is filled with an evil spirit. We know that from the text as well. And it's clear to both David and Jonathan that, that there are tough days ahead. Yeah, we've had a win. Yes, we've had some wins, but we're going to have to fight for a while. And so if you're thinking, if you're a young man and your job is to fight, you're going, well, we might not survive this. I mean, this guy, the, the king, he might get us, or we might die doing what we're called to do, we don't know who will live, so let's make this covenant to each other that we'll love each other through the generations. Now, I don't know anybody who's ever made that kind of an arrangement in my whole life, but they did. At the end of chapter, uh, end of First Samuel, chapter 31, um, what was kind of thought would happen does happen. Saul and Jonathan are killed on the battlefield. They're dead, all right? And, and uh, David, in time, becomes king. And what David does is, again, it's the best picture of a king. He unites the people of God under the worship of God. He brings Jerusalem back as the capital. He builds up the city. He sets up worship. He continues to fight battles. Now David's at peace, okay? He's had great success. There is nobody hunting him down. And he's searching in his mind, okay? He's just kind of recollecting in his mind, is there something else I can do? Is there something else I'm supposed to be doing as, as king for his people? And suddenly the promise that, that him and Jonathan made to each other comes to his mind. And that's where we find chapter nine. In chapter nine, David remembers. And he goes to look for, is there any way that I can extend this covenant to the, the remnants of Jonathan? Okay, and that was what he said in verse, in verse one of chapter nine. And Ziba, who was a servant of Saul, comes and says, yeah, there's somebody. And it's this young guy named Mephibosheth. All right, chapter um, four of 2 Samuel tells us all that we know about Mephibosheth. It just tells us that, that uh, he was the son of Jonathan. And when the news of Saul and Jonathan's death had reached home, his uh, childcare worker who was watching after him picked him up to run, which is what you do when your kingdom falls because what happens to you is that they go after the descendants of the king, right? Because there's a threat. There's always a threat to the throne. And so she picks him up to run and she trips and falls and he's crippled for life from that event. That's all it tells us that he is lame. And of course, we see it in Second Samuel 9 that repeated a couple of times. Obviously, the fear of the Philistines, obviously, they just took dad, they took grandpa, they're gone. Um, maybe David, maybe the new guy in charge will be threatened by your existence, so run. And so he uh, has this terrible accident, couldn't walk, tragic, not his fault, but that's his life. And if, I, if you stop for a second and put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes, you might have some issues. You did nothing wrong. You, you did nothing wrong, but you are now exiled, okay? The place you live, Lodabar, is actually a word that means no pasture. It's, it's desolate. 
You don't even go there to thrive. There's nothing there for you. And so here is former king's son's son. His future is all set up for him, gone. He lives outside of everywhere important, and he's crippled for life. That's Mephibosheth's lot. He has lost his security of his future. He's a victim. He's fatherless. He's an orphan. He grew up exiled, possibly, more than likely, on a steady diet of bitterness. Because I would. Angry at your circumstances. Maybe angry at David. Maybe angry at everything, okay? And from the time that Jonathan and David had made their covenant with each other, years had gone by clearly because neither one of them know of each other. Isn't that weird? David has to ask somebody else, is there anybody that I can extend this promise to? He doesn't know of Jonathan's kid. And Jonathan's kid doesn't know anything about the promise that Jonathan, his father, made to David. So they're just kind of both outside of the story at that moment. And so Mephibosheth probably saw David as a uncaring threat, the new king. And so the news comes, the king wants to speak to you. Can you imagine being him at that moment? Oh, here it is. Everything I dreaded, everything I thought would come to happen. David, David was the uncaring picture of a king in Mephibosheth's mind because he couldn't think of anything else. That might ring a bell for some of you, by the way. For instance, if you think of a king, if you think of the king we talk about a lot, if you think of, of a king we talk about named Jesus, and your only experience, your only thoughts of this king is he's terrifying. He doesn't want to do you good. He wants to do you harm. A lot of people have misconceptions about King Jesus. He wants to shrink my life. He wants to control my life. He wants to take the fun out of my life. And if I do anything wrong, he wants to crush me. So that narrative rings out there a lot. It's interesting that Mephibosheth's name means seething dishonor. So if you want to talk about how he lived, maybe that's a great connection. This guy had maybe some serious issues. Um, but years go by and we revive, revive, arrive at the story Mephibosheth is about 20 years old at this time. He's got a kid of his own, and he's told that the king wants to see him. And my assumption is that he's terrified of that. It could only mean really one thing. Um, that was obviously the norm of the day. And I can imagine him hoping as he travels to Jerusalem that things might go differently. But more and more as he got closer and closer, more fear kind of the surface in him. Nothing had gone right for him his whole life. He expected the worst. He had been let down every day of his life, but he couldn't have been more wrong. Because in verse six of chapter nine, here is this moment where David calls his name and this crippled man who probably couldn't walk has somehow the capacity to kneel before the king, to try to do his best to ward off the threat of the king. At that moment, David speaks his name, calls his name and says, I've got good news. What Mephibosheth couldn't possibly have imagined walking on his way or riding on his way to Jerusalem, that David was a different kind of king that he'd ever, ever heard about. He was the kind of king that would win you, love you, care for you, be interested in you. David was a different kind of king altogether. Everything changed for Mephibosheth that day. All the love that David had felt for his father, he just takes it and turns it and points it towards this young man 
He didn't know. He says, it's yours. This covenant I've made, I'm keeping, and you receive all that I promised. That's the story, all right? Unconditional, limitless, generous love. Now, there's, th- there's one word mentioned three times in this one little narrative. It's in verse 1, verse 3, and verse 7. Our English version uses the word kindness. You see it? In verse 1, David asks, is there anybody I can show kindness to? Verse 3, yes, there's someone. Um, God showed kindness to, verse 7. Um, I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Three, three times that word's used. It's in the Hebrew language. It's a very, a very familiar word. It's the word hesed. And, and they don't have an English word that matches or can keep up with this Hebrew word hesed. But hesed has this depth to it, the color of this kind of love. It's, it's translated for the sake of ease, like loving kindness. Well, that helps but it's not the whole picture. It is steadfast mercy. It is called loyal love. It is a covenant love. It is great affection, but it's way more than that, according to uh, most Hebrew scholars. It's great affection united with unswerving commitment no matter what happens, and it gets better than that. It's stability. It's dependability. It's, It's the ultimate picture of endless commitment. It is the word God chose to use for his affection for his people. I want to remind you. I want to put up the stone and remind you of God's love today. I want it to be that magnetic, irresistible force that no matter where you are, no matter how paranoid you might be, it's just too good to not go towards him. That is the story of God's hesed love, the love without regard to changing circumstances. It's a love that is Uh, can handle the inconvenient. It's a love that never fails. It is the love we talked about last night, for God so loved the world kind of love. It is the hardest of all loves to accomplish. It is the kind of love that doesn't manipulate or control. Always gracious, always generous, always believes the best. You might have heard of the pastor, um, Tim Keller. He was contrasting, comparing this Hesed covenant to... uh, the more American version of agreements. And he puts it in a term that we all want to go, well, that's, that's just calling it a bad name. But he says the version that we work with is the, is the consumer um, covenant or the what's easy covenant. Now, this is how he compares it. In a consumer relationship, you sacrifice the relationship to meet your needs. If it isn't helpful, isn't happy, you cut the person, you cut the people, you leave the place, you go to a different church, you just go. If it's not doing everything for me, my consumer relationship just means I got to make that best and whatever I have to do to cut those things off that, that are a little bit hard. The opposite of that is the covenant relationships. You sacrifice your needs for the relationship. Drastically different. Drastically different. And that is the kind of love that God, through Christ, loves us. David and Jonathan didn't know who would survive when they made their promises to each other. But they made a covenant promise that however it turned out, that they would love each other and their descendants as long as they could. It's that kind of loving kindness, hesed love that we're talking about here. Because of love, David gave Mephibosheth, this unknown, crippled, outsider, seething, dishonored boy, everything. 
the grandfather's land, yours. The, the place and position in life, yours. Your fear, I'm gonna take that too because no one's gonna mess with you. You're gonna have servants. You're gonna have your grandfather's servants. You're gonna have sonship. He didn't use that term, but you get to eat at my table. You get the whole thing, everything. Your disability, Mephibosheth, I know in this culture, you're kind of outside the city gates. You have to live in a place that's got no pasture, but no one's gonna even care. No one will even notice you walk with a limp. They won't know that you're crippled because I'm going to cover it up. That's what I'm going to do. That's how I'm going to keep the promise. It's interesting that in verse 11, the way the story ends is that he mentions it twice. And he'll always eat at my table. He'll always eat at my table. You know what happens when you eat at a table, right? I would imagine you just kind of slide under the table and those crippled legs, whatever they looked like, were never seen. You get the type of picture going on here, the grace and love of God. Every time your narrative, the stories of where you've been and what you've done, your brokenness has always been covered up by the hesed love of God. He remembers it no more. David, the one who's experiencing this repeated covenant, is the one who also, and I told you last night in Psalm 103, you know this thing about your iniquity, your transgressions? I'm gonna take it so far away from you, nobody can see it. That's what he says. Just like David did with Mephibosheth. You're gonna be sitting at the table. They won't know you're infirmed. I love that picture. I love the kindness of David towards this young man. But you know what this is. This is a gospel story. It is the picture of the gospel love, the good news love that God came for a whole bunch of crippled people for lots of reasons. And he made a promise and he's delivering on that promise, right? That is this gospel story. This wonderful, wonderful truth. You, you can see yourself in this character named Mephibosheth and you can see the nature of God in this person named David. You can see how that plays out. You can see your condition. But you might, uh, you might be feeling, feeling different than that story. You might be feeling more your inabilities. You might be feeling more your outsider position. You might be feeling more your brokenness. And you wonder, well, there's just no way. There's no way that, that I could be cared for like that. You might even have seething dishonor raging in your heart. Like, how could God allow all this terrible happen to me? How could God, who supposedly is in control, how could he precisely give me that or allow that? If he's God, why doesn't he do something? Well, I'm gonna just tell you what you might not have heard before. He has. 2 Corinthians 5, the Apostle Paul said this, amazing, we could do years on this. God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting man's sins against them. God made him, that's Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's how God covers up. That's how God deals with us. God meets us with grace. He meets us with full acceptance. David accepted Mephibosheth because of a promise. He made to Jonathan. God accepts us because of a promise he made to himself. 
If you want a great picture of it, I'm going to say it really quickly, but in, in the very beginning of the discussion of how God relates to man, there is this other man named Abraham. That God said, I'm going to make you a people. I'm going to make a promise to a people. I'm going to, and we know this after reading the whole narrative, that God is now telling the story of salvation grace in this. And so he, he invites Abraham close and he says, I'm going to cover you up and I'm going to care for you and make you a people and, and, and I'm going to give you a descendant. I'm going to give you a great nation. And, and it just simply says that Abraham believed. Keyword, believed and God gave him righteousness. That's how it happens for everybody, by the way. You put your faith in God and he gives you what you can't get anywhere else, a cleanness, a righteousness, a perfection based on the perfection of Jesus, okay? So Abraham believed. But then, and then he doesn't. There are moments where he goes, no, wait a minute. I'm, I'm scratching my head, God. You made a promise you're going to do something for me. And one of the things I'm hanging on to is that there's going to be descendants. And I can't see that happening. I'm an old man. My wife's an old woman. And so God does something wonderful. He makes a promise and he stamps it with this narrative. There's a, a moment where he tells Abraham, okay, here's, I'll, I'll, I'll finish this promise. Go and get some heifers and some goats and some pigeons and some doves and bring them back here and cut them in two. See, what he's about to do is make a covenant, a, a, like a contract signing. Because in that day, the way you and I would agree on something is we would make the statement and then we'd cut animals in two and split the gory pieces and you and I would join arms and we'd walk between the pieces. And we're basically saying, that's the way to sign a, a contract, let, let it be done to me what was done to these animals if either one of us break this deal, okay? So I can only imagine what Abraham's thinking at that moment. He is cutting up these heifers and these goats and these pigeons and these doves and he's separating the pieces and he's waiting for God to show up and we're going to join arms. We're going to make a covenant, this promise. Well, the text tells us that Abraham falls into a deep sleep, a sleep that God was in control of. Here's Abraham off to the side, out cold. And then the text tells us that a firing pillar of smoke passes between the pieces. The image of God at that time passes between the pieces, making a promise to himself while Abraham wasn't even involved that I will keep my promise, my covenant promise to you. So that is the first picture I see in, in the narratives of Scripture that tells us the kind of hessed love that God has for us. God made a promise to you and it had nothing to do with your ability to keep your part of the deal. You want to say amen to that? Because if there was another option, if there was another way that God will do it, if you just do X, Y, and Z, we're all screwed. Because we can't keep our end of the deal. Full acceptance because of the promise that God made to himself. Jesus said this, come to me, you who are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. That's real rest. Real rest that anchors in his power, his commitment, his righteousness provided by faith as opposed to everything else the way the world works. You do this and you earn that. Well, the only thing I know from Scripture, the only thing I know from my life is what I earn is God's judgment, not, not anything else. In John 6, Jesus said it again, all that the Father gives me, all that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I'll never turn away. I'll never drive them out. We have full acceptance in Jesus. He meets us there. He meets us with an abundant life. Uh, just to remind you of another reality, Jesus says, I've come that they might have life and life to the fullness. He, he, is, he is not just offered some kind of get out of hell free, but he's offered us existence, like truly joy and happiness, this idea of an abundant life. And he adopts us into this fullness that he's talked about again and again in many ways and in narratives like even this one with Mephibosheth. 
seething dishonor, living outside in no pasture, has been brought to the king's table. And he lives as if he never was crippled and he was never an outsider. Do you understand the picture of the gospel in that? Come on, do you get it? You need to get it because that right there describes this wonderful reminder of God's amazing love. He adopts us into this full life now and forever. We will be covered. Everything that we're ashamed of will never be seen again. I'm just trying to read your faces if you think that's good news. If you believe it by faith. Now, here's the reality of that wonderful news. It's available to anybody who realizes they're crippled. That's the condition. It's not available to people who think, I don't need help. Or I've got another option. I'm going to hold out and wait for other options. It just becomes unavailable to you. But if you recognize, man, I am outside. I am crippled. I do need help. And I'm terrified. You get it. You get sonship. You get adopted. You get all the ramifications of his kingship revealed in your life. You get it all. And it's yours by faith. An unbelievable depiction of God's amazing love. Now, did you need to be reminded of that today? Is that magnetic? Is it winsome? I hope it is. I don't care where you find yourself. I don't care if you're dried out. If you're sort of like Paul started this weekend, maybe you find yourself in dry bones. There is nothing more life-giving, nothing more quenching than to look at that thing right there that God's love has, has been demonstrated through Jesus, this promise he made to himself that you will not be lost, you will be his, and you will receive. Amen? Let's pray. We're always grateful, God, for the reminders that we see in narratives like this, the stories that you tell, stories that sometimes we forget or we need to be reminded of, stories like David and Jonathan and Mephibosheth, these pictures that you paint. God, we were reminded again of your Hesed love, this nonstop, keep coming forever, faithful for all eternity kind of affections that are, that are adopting kinds of affections. So my prayer is that that truth, that amazing truth sinks deep in our hearts today and that we're just moved to joy, a joy that your word just describes is um, hard to describe, beyond our ability to, one, comprehend, and, and one, to put into words. Deep, faithful, abiding affection. All we can do now is say thank you. In the name of Jesus. Dreamers.